It is August 28th, 2017, and you're listening to the Landscape Photography Podcast. As always, thank you guys so much for tuning in this week. In this episode, I'm going to be taking some of the show recommendations off of the Facebook group. If you're interested in joining the conversation, go over to the Landscape Photography Podcast Facebook group. Just do a search for Landscape Photography Podcast in Facebook, and you can find us there. Join the conversation. It's where a lot of the topic and show ideas come from, and it's where we all share our work with each other and just generally have a conversation. I'm also excited to announce that I'm going to be giving away two copies of my Astrophotography Post-Processing course. If you're interested in winning that, you have to do three things. You have to join the Facebook group, you need to subscribe to the show, and you need to share the show on a social media platform of your choice, namely Facebook or Instagram. Once you do those three things, go ahead and leave a comment over in the Facebook group, and I'll be picking two of those people next week to receive my astrophotography post-processing course. All right, so sit back and relax, and let's jump into this week's episode. first topic comes from Justin Richardson. He says, how do you keep a level head when you get to a site and you have to work with the conditions that nature gives you rather than the ones that you had in your head? He also goes on to say maybe a better way of putting this is, do you have a mental checklist that you go through when you get to a location? So often it's the case that you get this image in your head where you're going to this location. Maybe it's because you've seen a photo from that location before and that's kind of your inspiration for going there in the first place. Or you're just really into a particular type of photography, say, you know, a seascape with the big bright sunset and all kinds of color. And then you get there and the conditions are not that at all. That happens to me absolutely all of the time. It seems like, especially in Iceland, um, because the weather can be so uh, temperamental there that a lot of times you get to a location and you're hoping for that big sunset and it's just not going to happen. And on those kind of days, I always kind of jokingly say, well, it looks like a black and white day. And there's a lot of truth to that. Anytime that you have a scene that is lacking the color that you're hoping for, but there's still contrast and texture, texture in the clouds, texture, you know, in your foreground, texture in the scene in general, that's almost always going to make for a really nice black and white photo. Because you're dealing with black and white and not color, you can go way crazy with contrast and use contrast to really add and amplify some of that texture and contrast and interest that there already is in the scene. So step number one is if the conditions are not going to be that big, bright, colorful sunset, a lot of times my mind starts thinking, ah, this is black and white. Another thing is, If the sky sucks, don't include it or include less of it. Don't make your photo all about the sky if the sky is not really adding to the shot. There are also times when the sky might be huge and big and beautiful and have that, you know, every color of the rainbow type uh, sunset going on, but that's not what the photo is about. Maybe you're at a location where you need to include more of your foreground and less of your sky. Just because the sky is amazing, that does not necessarily mean you have to include it. 
So when I get to a location, I try as hard as I can to go in with no expectations as far as the photo that I'm going to make. I try to just show up, walk around, explore, and just look and see. And that, and by doing that and by not getting your camera out too early, it allows you to open up to the possibilities that are actually there rather tr than trying to force your own vision onto the location. If you go in with those preconceived ideas, a lot of times you force it and you try to make it work in a situation where that type of shot just might not be there. So just going in blank without expectation, it actually allows you to see what is possible there rather than, you know, forcing your ideas onto the location. Another thing is, especially when the conditions are not ideal, try to look for the small scenes, like the small little, you know, landscape vignette where you're just using a telephoto and isolating just a section of the scene. Or maybe it's, you know, textures of cliff faces and rocks and stuff like that. If the big wide shot is not there, look outside of that. Start thinking, you know, longer telephoto lenses. Start thinking about maybe macro and maybe use it as an opportunity to get out of your normal comfort zone and to try to be a little bit more creative with the compositions and the subjects that you're photographing. Jim Davis's topic is maybe some more beginner type topics like knowing what aperture, what ISO, what shutter speed to use, etc. I'm very guilty of speaking over the heads of a lot of newer photographers. It's because I get so used to thinking about my own problems that I kind of forget about some of the problems that I had, you know, two or three years ago. Some of my biggest, most useful tips for new up and coming landscape photographers are this. Number one, probably the most important one is expose for your highlights. What that means is make your photo as bright as you can get it before blowing out your highlights. Once you start to blow out those highlights, they're gone forever. And if you're the type of person that likes to only edit and only take one photo and then process it in Lightroom and you're not doing some kind of bracketed shot through HDR or exposure blending or anything like that, the correct way of taking a photo is to expose for your highlights. Get it as bright as you can without overexposing those highlights. You have a little bit more latitude with those shadows than you do with your highlights. So boom, number one, expose for your highlights. Tip number two is to work on a tripod. Working on a tripod opens up so many good possibilities. First of all, is that you can use any shutter speed you want, which means that you get to use ISO 100 anytime you want to, because that's always going to be an option. So your image quality is going to be better. It also means that getting a deep depth of field is going to be much easier because you can use any shutter speed you want. You can use ISO 100 and you can also use any aperture you want. So by working on a tripod, depth of field is not going to be a problem. It even opens up things like focus stacking. Working on a tripod is incredibly useful, especially for longer shutter speed stuff. Tip number three is if you're going to get a tripod, get a good tripod. There's nothing more frustrating than working with a crappy tripod because you're constantly interacting with your tripod. You're moving it around, you're adjusting your ball head, you're, you're changing the height of your tripod, you're folding it up, you're opening it up. You deal with a tripod a lot as a landscape photographer. And if that is a frustrating experience for you, landscape photography in general is going to be a frustrating experience for you. Also, this is the device that is keeping your camera off of the ground and out of the water and out of the snow and off of those hard, sharp rocks. So it makes sense to 
invest a little bit and maybe put that expensive camera and lens that you spent all that money on and to put it on a nice, stable, safe platform. It makes a lot of sense because it's going to protect your camera. So invest in your tripod and buy nice or buy twice, as they say. The next thing is in landscape photography, depth of field matters. In most shots, you're going to be wanting a nice deep depth of field where just everything looks in focus. That way the viewer is free to look at the foreground, free to look at the background. Everything's nice and sharp and their eye gets to explore and there's just more depth into the photo. But there are those times when a shallow depth of field simplifies the shot and makes a really complex, busy photo much more simple and much more aesthetically pleasing. So don't get locked into just one aperture like a lot of photographers do. Generally speaking, the closer you are to your foreground subject, the smaller the aperture you're going to need, meaning the larger the number. So if you're incredibly close to your foreground, sometimes you're going to use apertures like F18, maybe F20, but never use F22, just as a general rule of thumb. Then you get into something called diffraction, which basically means that your image gets soft. Generally for me, F18 is as far as I ever stop down my camera lens, because then you get into diffraction. If it's a really extreme situation where I'm, you know, really incredibly close, like inches away from my foreground, but I want everything to be nice and sharp in my photo, then I get into something called focus stacking, where I focus on the foreground, focus a little deeper into the shot, and I might take five to 10 photos where I'm focusing slightly further into the frame. Then I line all of that up and blend them together in Photoshop. That way I get perfect sharpness all the way through my photo. Focus stacking is an incredibly useful tool because it allows you to go beyond the limits of the way a lens functions and get absolute perfect sharpness from front to back but it's a whole lot more work and it can slow you down. And if you're not somebody that edits in Photoshop, eh, it's probably not going to be for you. But if you are somebody that edits in Photoshop, it's only an extra step and it's totally worth the extra sharpness that you can get. My last beginner tip is to look at tons of photos. Look at the work of other photographers, find photographers that you really like and really admire and just kind of analyze, okay, what is it that they're doing that I'm not? And why is it that their photo is more impactful than my photo? In the beginning, most times it's going to be composition. So often a good landscape photographer is just so much better at composition that it makes your photo look snapshotty or amateur because maybe they're getting closer to their foregrounds. Maybe they're just more of a perfectionist about what they're including in their photo. So analyze their compositions. But then the next step is to analyze their post-processing. Post-processing cannot be overstated in today's photography. It's a very important part of photography. You know, there is the in the field stuff that happens. You need to capture good stuff while you're out shooting. But then what you do with that photo afterwards is, in my opinion, is just as important. You can be the best photographer in the world, but unless you're a decent post-processor, you're never going to milk out the full potential of that photo unless you do at least at least some basic post-processing. And the better at post-processing you are, the more you can milk out of that potential that is inside of those photos that you captured out in the field. So ideally, you got to be good at both. And when you look at the photography of others, analyze both and try to apply the things that you learn by looking at their work to your own work. 
Gary's topic is tips and thought process behind coming up with creative compositions. Basically, how do you come away with images that are unique and stand out from the crowd? And he also says, excellent podcast, by the way. Well, thank you for the kind words. Yeah, creative compositions, that's like a never ending process. I feel like you should always take a look at your work and try really hard to take your composition and take the creative part of your compositions to the next level the next time you go out. Being super creative compositionally is one of the hardest things when you're first learning because you know you don't have you don't have the courage to do something new and creative like in the beginning a lot of what you're doing is just going out and just trying to take a good landscape photo and then later on you start thinking about taking a landscape photo that nobody else has taken one of the most challenging things is when you go to a location that has been shot a lot a lot of times you go in with those images that you've seen before in the back of your head whether you're actively trying to recreate them or not, you end up recreating them because they're back there, they're in your head, and maybe it's just a place that has that one obvious composition. So what I'll do is I I will make sure to get that obvious shot. I'll make sure to get the shot that I know is there, I know is money. And then I try to move on from that and get more and more artsy fartsy, as I call it, and creative. So I will just, you know, explore, I'll move my camera around, keep my camera moving, and just really look around at the different possibilities. A lot of times it's all about finding a really interesting, unique foreground or something to frame your background with. A lot of times it's just just finding those unique little corners of an area can be really interesting. That or just ignoring what the background is altogether and to shoot in a completely different way, completely different direction than what you've seen other people do. The main thing is just to just have fun and explore. You can do that just by taking your cell phone and kind of walking around a scene and like playing around with holding your cell phone really low or really down close to a rock and or, you know, over by a tree or whatever it is and just keep moving, keep moving around and don't put too much pressure on yourself to make sure that you come away with an award winning photo, like have fun with it. A person is far more creative when they have a smile on their face just by having fun and exploring and continuing to move during your shoot, you're going to come away with more creative photos because you're giving yourself permission to maybe take some bad photos. It's when you put the pressure on yourself to only come away with amazing photos or good photos that you kind of tense up and you're afraid to have fun and explore. So give yourself freedom to like get that safe shot and then go move around, have fun and don't put too much pressure on yourself. Joshua asks, tips regarding blending of multiple exposures, uh, both exposure blending and focal length blending. Just a quick rundown of what those are. Exposure blending is when you take two different photos and you take one dark one for your sky, one bright one for your foreground, and then you blend them together in Photoshop. That way you have full dynamic range. Focal length blending is when you take most oftentimes a wide angle shot for your foreground and then zoom in a little bit and take a longer focal length shot for your background, most oftentimes to make that background mountain or whatever it is large in your frame again. So the biggest tips are when you're exposure blending, my one of my favorite things to do is to treat that sky differently than I would my foreground. What I mean by that is a lot of times your foreground, what you're trying to do is maintain shadow detail. Maybe I'll boost my blacks a little bit. I'll make sure that I'm starting with a fairly dark foreground, one that 
looks believable when I blend it with a darker sky, but I'm going to, it's going to be a slightly lower contrast where I'm boosting shadows a little bit, boosting blacks a little bit, maybe bringing the exposure down just a tiny bit. But then when I process my sky file, because it's only going to be affecting the sky, a lot of times I will remove sharpening. I'll go crazy with the contrast and really try to make that sky pop a little bit. Also make sure that it's as bright as it can be without clipping any highlights. Because the end goal is to end the blending process with a believable result and then start from there rather than boosting your exposure a lot on your foreground, bringing it down a whole lot in your sky and then trying to blend that. That makes it a far more difficult blend. But just treating your sky file slightly differently than you do your foreground file can get you into a really nice starting point. When I'm doing focal length blends, a lot of times, well, first of all, the most important thing is to make sure that you're processing both your background and your foreground exactly identically with all of the exact same settings. You know, shoot them at the same settings while you're out in the field. Try to keep that horizon line about the same place as you're shooting it. So a lot of times when you're taking that background file, you might have to pan up a little bit or tilt up a little bit to make sure that that horizon lines in the are approximately the same area. And then when you go to post process it before you start to stitch it together, make sure that you're syncing all of those same edits that you do to one photo over to the other. That's going to make them blend a whole lot more simply. And then as you blend them together, just kind of follow the natural contours of the land and stuff. It doesn't have to be a sharp line. And a lot of times you just kind of start at the top and you start working your way down and eventually you're going to come away with a natural looking transition area. And that's pretty much the main thing. Stanley Harper asks, any crazy travel stories? Well, yeah, this one kind of has me thinking back and as far as just crazy adventures, my China trip was probably the most adventurous because the whole experience was just so crazy. Like it's so far out of my comfort zone. And especially when you look back at it and think about the logistics involved, if we wouldn't have had Andy and Mia Beals, who were our, our guides for that tour, uh, we would have just been lost in China. There was so much to it because we had to do things like, you know, take a bamboo raft ride across the river, across the Lee River at 3.30 in the morning and to meet a tuk-tuk driver, which is like this little motorcycle with a box on the back that they throw people in. Uh, to meet a tuk-tuk driver at three, you know, 3.50. And there's just so many moving parts to try to keep all of that uh, moving. It was just crazy. So we, most mornings we found ourselves waking up at 3.30 in the morning, hopping on some raft in the dark, riding in the rain up the river, and then hopping on this little motorcycle thing and then riding that up a mountain. And then we had to climb this set of stairs and we get up there and there'd be all these other Chinese photographers there's such a huge language barrier when you travel, especially to rural Asia where nobody speaks English. Absolutely nobody. The only people that I ever found that spoke English there were some of the children that had been taking some English classes in school. The whole experience was just so cool. There were so many crazy experiences. Like for one thing, I was traveling with my buddy, Brian McGuckin. He, he is a big, tall guy and I'm kind of a shorter, rounder guy. And all of the Chinese people had never really seen somebody as tall as him. And they'd never really seen anybody quite as girthy as me. So everybody there wanted to have their picture taken with us. And then when they would stand next to me and, and smile for the camera, 
oftentimes they would put like one hand on my belly. And if every shoot that I did felt like a maternity shoot of some kind, like Nick was pregnant, it was just really, really funny. And there was so much crazy food there. One of the things that they had to do was call ahead of time and say, Hey, we have a whole bunch of Americans coming to dinner tonight. Can you take the dog and the horse off the menu for tonight? Because literally they eat anything in South Southern China. They, there was like their idea for fast food and some of the places that we were visiting was like rat on a stick. Or I saw at one point I saw smoked bat where it was just an entirely whole bat with the head and the wings and everything. And they just shove a stick through it. They smoke it. And that's what people call fast food. It was just an incredibly different experience. It was culture shock to the max for a small town American Nick. Um, but I wouldn't trade it for the world. I don't know that I'm up for another trip to China. It was just quite the adventure. Mark Morris says, I've always admired and enjoyed your whole how I got started in photography story um, after your injury and your journey to the point where you are. Maybe some of the newer listeners that haven't been listening to you for a while might be interested in hearing some of that. So for those of you that do not know Nick's background, I've only been doing photography since I guess winter of 2012, I guess, or maybe it was spring of 2013, um, got my first camera in the winter of 2012. And the whole way that I got into photography was I was working my day job, which was a golf course greenskeeper, and I herniated two discs in my back. I have what's called stenosis of the spine, which means I have a very narrow spinal canal. And when you herniate a disc and you have a narrow spinal canal, your spinal cord has nowhere to escape to, which equates to really, really, really bad nerve pain when you have a herniated disc. And my nerve pain was so bad that I was completely bedridden. I could not get up to even walk to the bathroom. It was not a pretty time for Nick Page. I had to have people literally make my foods and, and feed me my medication. And it took me a month and a half to get to my surgery date. As I was laying on my couch, completely miserable, life completely put on hold. And I was watching all of this television. I thought to myself, I just need something to do with my brain. And so rather than watching television and, you know, just watching the same junk on TV all day long, I was like, you know what, I'm going to take this time to learn something. You can learn anything on YouTube. And I was like, I'm going to learn something new. And at the time I thought I was kind of interested in videography. So I started watching all these videography and photography tutorials on YouTube. I started watching things like Digital Rev and Gavin Hoey and all of these really great content creators on, on YouTube. At the time, I thought I was learning videography, but then when I got my first camera, I discovered, hey, I kind of actually really like photography too. So by the time I got my very first DSLR, I knew how to shoot in manual. I understood the exposure triangle. I kind of had a leg up because I had watched so many tutorials. I had literally watched, watched nothing but tutorials for a month and a half. Then I, you know, started taking pictures of my kid and then started taking pictures of the neighbor's kid and it just kind of snowballed. And within a year of getting my first camera, quit my day job because photography was kind of taking over my life and I was just getting too busy to keep both a day job and photography. After hurting my back as bad as I did, because I was hurting so bad, I thought that I might not ever walk again. And I was really afraid that that was just going to be what my life was, you know, just living in pain and being able to like get up and move around again after, you know, 
months of not being able to, I promised myself that I would never say no to an opportunity and I would never let fear dictate uh, what I did and didn't do. Because I know that at any time my back could get bad again and I could be right back onto that couch. So I've kind of lived like that ever since where I'm just going to, as I tell people, I'm just going to ride it till it dies. I'm going to ride this particular horse until it dies. And then, you know, someday my back will probably get bad again and I won't be able to do the things that I currently do. So I'm just going to enjoy it while I can. And I feel like that's kind of the way people should live their life because it's always going to end. The sad thing is everybody listening to this podcast, you're all going to die someday. And (laughs) sorry to be the bearer of bad news. And we might as well do the most we can and have the most fun that we can while we can, because it's, we're not always going to be able to do all of the things that we're currently able to do. So for me, that means I'm going to travel. I'm going to take a whole bunch of pretty pictures and I'm just going to enjoy it while it lasts. Awesome. Well, thank you guys so much for tuning in. Sorry about (laughs) my little soapbox there at the end. But remember that if you want to follow me on social media, you can. You can just find me over on Instagram, Facebook, whatever. Just do a search for Nick Page Photography. Please subscribe to the show. And remember, I'm giving away those two astrophotography tutorials. So like, subscribe, share with your friends, and leave a comment in the Facebook group and I'll be picking two winners next week. Thank you guys so much, and we'll see you in the next episode.